Welcome to the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, where every week we bring you an interview from someone who loves these horses, from historians and breeders to insiders and professionals, all brought to you by those who love the Arabian horse. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. This is Paul Costa with the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, and we're thrilled today to have Sean Cruz with us today. Sean, hello. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, and thank you so much for being here. For those who don't know, Sean is with Sean Cruz International, and she's based out of Waco, Texas. And today we're really going to do a primer on the straight Egyptian community and the Egyptian community, um, both in the USA and globally. And Sean, we're just thrilled for you to share some of your long-standing knowledge in this, these categories. Well, thank you. I've been enjoying your podcast. And I, and I have to tell you that it was my client that told me about what you're doing and encouraged me to check it out. And they were telling me how much they've enjoyed your coverage of, um, you know, loving Arabian horses. Well, it's kind of a universal thing that we all share this love of the Arabian horse. And it's funny, I talk to all kinds of people, but their stories often are very similar, just kind of got played out in different ways. Um, speaking of that, why don't we start with how you got started with Arabians, how you first found your Arabian horses, your passion? Well, I think m- most of us that have spent our life with horses can look back to um, kind of a chance meeting somewhere that, uh, you know, was pivotal in our um, our direction of spending our lives uh, doing this. and. Mine wasn't exactly a chance meeting. Um, uh, my father is, spent his life in publishing and ran the uh, the publishing department for Word Incorporated, which was a co- the company that Gerald McCracken owned, and Gerald sure. McCracken owned Bentwood Farm. And so, um, uh, but I grew up in Southern California, and and late 70s there was a lot of trouble to get into out there and I ditched school more than I went to school and one day I came home and my bags were packed and I was being sent to Waco, Texas. Um, <laughs> it's, when you were a kid back then and getting in trouble they'd send you to a farm and just kind of you know leave you there and um, but uh, my father did know where he was sending me and uh, but it well, was, what, a, what uh, a wonderful way for you to get introduced in a, in an odd sort of way. It, it it was an odd way, and and I I I loved all animals. That was the only thing that ever kind of inspired me. School bored me to death, and and I loved animals, but I did I had no experience with horses, even though I, I mean, I used to. Today we have the internet. Back when I was a little kid, we had Encyclopedia Britannicas, and right. I looked up the horse pages. I just wore them out, you know, um, and so I loved them, but I had no experience, and I basically got dropped to this farm, and, you know, they didn't care if I was a friend of somebody's family or not or what. Um, I got put on the breeding crew, and for anybody that has any knowledge of what a you know what a breeding crew is on on a large farm it is not for the faint of heart. Right, it's a big uh, project. It, well, how it, how old were you when that happened? I was 17 years old. Okay. Um, I did actually graduate from high school, which uh, was a good thing. But um, um, but it was so here I was living in a house trailer on Bentwood Farm, which is like 1,200 acres. 
and I mentioned to you earlier, now my farm now backs up to that property, which is so I've been close uh, to uh, to where I started for many years. But my first job on the farm was to help take the temperatures on 40 foals every morning. And um, if you know, you ever try to run out and grab a foal, and you know, that could take all day. <laughs> yeah, right. So I they had a they had a great crew there. Um, these guys have been at that farm for years. I fell in love with them. And they protected me, and they didn't tell the bosses how stupid I was. And, um, and you know, so basically I couldn't have even been a part of it um, if it weren't for that those great guys. But um, sure. uh, along with just learning to to handle the horses, I kept hearing from the, you know, the boss guys over and over. You know, they'd say, um, well, that straight Egyptian mare, or they'd refer to the Egyptian-related filly, or right. the Polish cross mare. I mean, I'm hearing all this. It means nothing to me at the time. Um, like I said, all I cared about is their temperament. Like, would they hurt me? Would they run me over? Would they bite me or kick me? That's all I cared about is I have a total novice um, dropped into this large uh, breeding sure. program. and. Uh, uh, but it, and I'm embarrassed to say that in regards to the, the, the boss's comments and hearing all this stuff, that it was 15 years before I understood what is a straight Egyptian horse. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll go back to that, to that um, later, but um, it wasn't long before I got fired from the breeding crew, Paul. The breeding manager just, pretty much let me go. So it was like, what am I going to do? The last thing I wanted to do is go home and, you know, tell my dad I failed or whatever. And um, David Gardner, who a lot of you know is is a really instrumental person in the Arabian industry. Um, yep. He's retired now, but he's also the father of Katie Gardner Harvey, who is one of the best supporters of our Arabian industry in all respects. Sure. Um, David Gardner took me up to the show barn, um, and um, uh, he wasn't happy about it because he didn't think taking a kid that's a friend of the family, the owner's family, was a you know. But I think they were just sure to help. So um, I, I didn't get kicked off the farm. I got to stay on the farm, and I got moved to the show barn. That's cool. Well, what a great place to get started back then. How many horses were they breeding, do you recall, each year then? Paul, at one point, there was over a 1,000 horses on that farm. Oh, my gosh. It, it was um, certainly the largest trade Egyptian farm in the U.S., and I think at that time, possibly in the world. Yeah. Well, I know you've had a lot of experience, and you really kind of plunged into the Egyptian community, and that's what we want to focus on today. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about the fascination today with the straight Egyptian and Egyptian-related horses in non-Egyptian-related breeding programs? Um, it, it's really amazing that it's taken a, a, probably over the last maybe seven or eight years, um, it, it's taken a real twist. For, for so many years, Paul, the breeders in this state and, and uh, worldwide, I think, you know, they wanted to prove their breeding program so badly 
that we didn't share each other's horses. You know, it was just such a ego thing, really. Uh, and so, but what I've seen transpire, uh, and I think maybe it's some of it's due to the fact that the, the number of horses is less than uh, than it was like back in the day where I was at Bentwood Farm with over a thousand horses. Sure. So people have begun to share each other's horses, and it it has just absolutely, I think, taken the quality of the Arabian horses um, to a whole new level. Now, when you say share, what I want to clarify is you're talking about sharing meaning intermixing breeding lines to help improve the next generation. Exactly. People open their minds to to um, to taking their breeding programs out because they had to. You know, you're getting to a point where you've, you've got your line bred for five years, and um, and so they they have started uh, intermingling these horses and and sharing them. People were started breeding their non-Egyptian mares to straight Egyptian stallions, and straight Egyptian breeders have taken their mares, their straight mares, out to uh, you know stallions of all different bloodlines. And, right. and but they didn't talk about it at first. Um, again, I think it goes back to let's let's put it this way: you can tell someone their child is a, a pain, right, and don't ever bring them back to the farm and still be friends. Right. But if if you tell someone your horses aren't any good or whatever, you're never going to speak again. It's just um, it's a it's a pride thing and. So in the beginnings, starting, you know, 10 to 7 years ago, people didn't talk about it, that they were sharing uh, sharing other bloodlines. Um, and, uh, but then when it worked so well, and, of course, my first, my first personal experience with it was Ali Jamal. Right. Um, he, he arrived at the farm here in Waco as a yearling, um, he, uh, the shipper had literally they lost the horse for like four days. I didn't know where the horse was. He came in with double pneumonia, pleurisy so bad he had blood coming out his nose from his lungs. And um, I pulled out my desk at the barn and in the hallway and just slept with him. But he made it, and that was my first experience of I knew his mother because his mother had come to the farm to be bred, and heritage memory was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, she was bred to Ruminash Ali, and then of course the Bergrens were really bragging on how good this colt was. And he's he, he, that's one of the very first that just has influenced the breed in ways that it's hard to even quantify. Well, he was certainly a major impact on the breed. And just so everyone knows, his breeder, official breeder, was the Bergren family. Jim, uh, Tom, and Jim Bergren, the Bergren yep. family Arabians. Yes, they bred many more. You know, really super horses, but I think Ali Jamal was the first ex- example of what it's like um, to cross straight Egyptians. His his mother's family was um, predominantly Spanish um, mm-hmm. and what we call domestic blood, but um, uh, so it it started to go from there and um, uh, and it well of course one of the next ones is Ghazal El Shakab. Who was by Ruminaj Ali's son? I think Ruminaj Ali was instrumental in 
uh, he he was a prolific sire of great stallions. Um, his daughters were nice, but uh, but he was a great stallion producer. And Anaz Al Farid um, uh, was bred to uh, Tajora, uh, whose female line is Polish, and uh, to produce Ghazal Al Shakab, who produced Marwan, whose legacy is you know, you know, hard to Very well respected. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just exciting to me to see, but what's happened is, is that from a breeding standpoint, you have these programs, especially the Egyptian programs, um, uh, because they are so tightly bred and going back to what is a straight Egyptian horse that it took me, so long to actually know, and it's so simple. Um, well, why don't you uh, share about that? What is an straight Egyptian horse? I can't remember the dates, but it was back in the 1800s that a guy named Muhammad Ali, the guy the boxer was named after, but um, a guy named Muhammad Ali, who was a passionate horseman, like eat, sleep, and breathe it, and he basically conquered this huge part of the Arabian Peninsula and took the finest 1,100 horses off the desert to Egypt. And every straight Egyptian horse in the world today, and it's and that's documented on their AHA certificates, traces back to those 1,100 horses. Wow. So they were hand-picked, you know, the best of the best, and then been bred together since today. So you have this really concentrated genetic pool that what if you I, you have dogs I think Paul do you, do you breed yep. dogs I thought so and you know that there's a hybrid vigor when you take this incredible concentrated line that hopefully you know you've concentrated the best of them um, uh, and then you take it completely out and there's a hybrid vigor that produces amazing individuals well that's you know, that's what's happening today and, and exactly what happened with producing Ali Jamal and and um, uh, Ghazal and there's a whole the forward list of them, but they those two were, I think, uh, instrumental in having people go, oh my gosh, let's, you know, let's dip into this concentrated pool and it worked. Well, that's great, and I think you've got so straight Egyptians, and you have Egyptian-related, and Ali Jamal would be an Egyptian-related, right? Because exactly. Because he's not 100% yes. straight Egyptian. Right. Um, Some of the and, horses that are winning today are actually the cross, you know, they're crossbreds. There's, Paul, it's, there's too many of them to even list, and and it, it's just really exciting not only to see those individuals, but their their production, and um and so some really influential shows have started to offer Egyptian divisions in their shows because it's like, um, well, Scottsdale is a great example, and i got to give a shout-out to Terrell O'Shea and to Janice McCray for um, their, you know, their role in really pushing that international division because we, get, we have different styles of Arabian horses. Uh, yep. And... You, well, you you judge so much, Paul. You know if you're if you're in the outdoor ring at Scottsdale judging the two-year-old fillies, it's a 
it's an American look. It's a different look than than what they're looking for in the international ring. And I think it was the smartest decision of them to incorporate the different looks of the horses in this world because it, there's a different look when you judge overseas as you've done. Sure. Um, and and they're all important. All important. Well, and even at Scottsdale, as you said, just to emphasize that, I mean, you're definitely ju- judging a little bit different. There's just a slight nuance from the classes outdoors, the main ring that are the normal halter and breeding classes versus that international ring. There's just a slight difference of the way it's handled, and that includes a slight difference in the showing style and the type of horse you're judging. So it is it is an interesting nuance, and I'm not sure that it, having it all be the same is really the right thing. Some people think that we ought to have the exact same standard everywhere in the world, but there's a slightly different standard in Brazil and a slightly different standard in Australia, and I think that you see a little bit of the cultures that have influenced them as well. Absolutely, and and I think if, as Americans, we would have been foolish not to um, give a venue to the different looks from around the world because we would have been left out. I, I'm so excited about the the venues that we do have today, and there, it's like three divisions. There's the straight Egyptians. Each one must go back to the the 1,100 horses that were taken to Egypt by Muhammad Ali, and those are documented on their registration certificates. So okay. um, that's easy to to uh, look it up on data source. The Egyptian related must be 50% Egyptian, either by a straight Egyptian sire or a straight Egyptian dam. It's not like, you know, going through their whole pedigree and finding 50%. It's, it's got to be the sire or the dam is a straight Egyptian. That, no, sire or dam is Egyptian related. Okay. So, so they have 50% Egyptian blood either by either being uh, sired by a straight or out of a straight Egyptian mare. Okay, and then Egyptian heritage. Egyptian heritage are 25% Egyptian. Most of the shows have it to where that means that one grandparent must be straight Egyptian. So okay. that would that would be 25% Egyptian. So in each of these cases, though, you're not adding up the percentages across many generations back, it literally has to be either the sire of the dam or the grandparents to qualify for these two categories. Paul, that is what's typical at most of these shows. Each okay. show manager can direct it in the manner they they desire, but like an Egyptian uh, heritage would be, let's say you had the mother is a de-desperado daughter that's out of a non-straight mare, so, so de-desperado would be her grandsire. And so that qualifies for Egyptian heritage is 25% Egyptian blood. Always, always want to check with the show management on the Egyptian heritage, but that is what is is typically most typical. Uh, yes, yeah. So Scottsdale, at the international show. What we're doing in Ocala in conjunction with Region 12 yes. is so exciting. And and oh my God, what a venue, Paul. That well, I've been, is... I've been I've been to it twice, and I've been to Region 12 twice, but also to the Egyptian um, event that's also part of Region 12, and it's just quite impressive what they're doing there. I mean, they've got a fantastic setup, and I know Allison Maida has been instrumental in organizing that, and that's certainly, I would call it, a keystone show for the Egyptians there at the Region 12 show. Yeah, 
she's the boss. We all, uh, we, we all just, she's the boss. She created it. It was her brainchild. And facilities matter. You know, like, I don't think our Egyptian event would have lasted as many years as it did without, without um, being a part and being held at the Kentucky Horse Park. Right. Um, you know, when you have all these photo ops and you can, it, 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 it was a magical, magical feeling just to be there. And I, I never thought I'd see something as magical as that. Uh, and when I stepped on that, that uh, facility in Ocala, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to be getting to know Ocala real well. You know, I mean, yeah. how could you do any better than that? Um, and, and we're so lucky that the Region 12 management has allowed us to um, be, be a part of that. Well, so you've got the Region 12 event. You've got the event that's at the Scottsdale Show in February. You've also got the Breeders' Finals, which is Scottsdale in September. And I know the East Coast Championships has a big two-day event as well. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, I just got home from the East Coast um, Egyptian Classic there, and uh, you know, the stands are full. Everybody comes out. The breeders are supporting everybody, even if they're not showing a horse. They'll just get behind, uh, you know, their friend's horse. And there's just a camaraderie that is really amazing. And I think everybody realizes how much our friendships mean to, you know, the horse people's friendships with each sure. other. It's so that these shows have been so well supported. Um, the, uh, the, uh, they're having a show here in Texas in Bryan um, in September, the Autumn uh, Arabian Autumn Classic Show, and they're offering a full range of uh, Egyptian classes, and I'm looking forward to seeing that. So I think it's just, it's, you know, it, it's an, it's a, a another way to um, uh, showcase those with Egyptian blood, and that makes me really proud. I know that. The other bloodlines don't have kind of those venues, but they're. But I, I, it makes me really proud to see Egyptian blood in these magnificent horses. That, frankly, we envy a lot of the the qualities that they have that we don't have. So when you put them together and you get to see these great horses, it's just um, it, it's very rewarding. Well, and the shows that we mentioned in the beginning were the bigger shows, and now you're talking about the show in Bryan is. I think that's the Gulf Coast Arabian Horse Club, which is a normal is. Class A show, and they've added an Egyptian element to that show. And I think as you have more of those around the country decide to include the Egyptian-related classes, then there will be more opportunities for the Egyptian horses to be shown even at a Class A level. Absolutely. It's it's exciting. And uh, so I just think there's a lot of positive energy in our business today with the horses and it's like I said I've never before seen breeders um just so uh in in tuned with each other and helping each other it wasn't that way when I was young I mean we were we were out to you know uh just annihilate each other we we um, we were secretive we didn't share information and that kind of thing. And it's just um, uh, really, really fun to watch all these people sharing their experience and horses and mares. They'll lease a mare to another breeder. 
they'll get the breeding to a great breeder for a great mare, and so it's 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 really a good vibe these days. Well, and you know, for 20 years or so, maybe 30, you had the Pyramid Society and you had the Egyptian event, which was one of the best shows in the USA, and certainly one that was very um, you felt very you know respected and honored to even be included to be a judge. I judged it once. And love doing that, and things have changed. I mean, the business has shifted, and so there's a different set of venues, like you were talking about a minute ago, for the Egyptian community now. And I know there's some reorganization going on as well. Do you have any thoughts about the history of the past or the future or where it's going? Well, first of all, I remember the year you judged at the event, and it was something that I was was near and dear to my heart was to have judges come there that weren't immersed in the Egyptian world because. I wanted to expose what we were doing to, um, you know, to others that weren't in the midst of it. I mean, why would we get, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you don't get breeders or judges that um, are are immersed in Egyptian horses, but it's all about sharing what we're doing with the outside world that may not be exposed to it. And sure. um, so... Uh, 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 I, I I remember the year you judged, and it was fun to me to have you see what we did. And um, so, and, and it is disappointing that basically uh, the, that Egyptian event, the big banana, is no more. Um, uh, but there was just some things going on at that time that you know couldn't be overcome. And but I think people like Allison Meta keeping this thing in the road. Um, it was it it was a show I can't remember I think it was at Alabama wherever Region 12 was before, um, but she she started it there and has kept it in the road for us for this Ocala show and then Lisa Safrice on the show in Virginia, and um, and I can't thank Carol and Janice enough for what they've done sure. to keep that at Scottsdale. I mean it, that was that was the the uh, you know introductory um, that they broke ground for having, uh, you know, having something like that. And I, I remember I remember the year that L.A. All showed there. There were, like, there was only five straight Egyptian steins in that ring, but they were all notable. And sure. in that arena, that thing was packed. You, you could standing room only to watch a five-horse five steins class. Mm-hmm. And I looked, well, I got to judge it the first year they did the Egyptians, which was, fun but every year um they they draw great horses and people want to see them and and so just like i said lots of exciting things going on with people working together sharing bloodlines and the result of it is really well john do uh, you see more folks doing more straight egyptian only or do you see them doing more mixed bloodlines or it's going to be kind of a combination moving forward what do you see the future well, first of all, I think that's a great question because one thing I kind of didn't mention is that it's an, uh, it's inherently important to keep uh, straight to keep breeding straight Egyptians because I believe the I believe the reason to breed straight Egyptians is that so other breeders of other bloodlines and and other breeds, frankly, always have that that intensely spread genetic gene pool to pull from. Sure. So I think uh, I think those people that only want to breed straight Egyptians, I think we need it. You know, 
Um, but then, but I don't think there, there used to be a, like a, you know, kind of a negative connotation of somebody that would take their straight Egyptian mare out to a non-straight stallion. And I think that's done with. But yep. it's very, very important to, for, for our, our straight Egyptian breeders. And I have, I work with partners in uh, Virginia and in New Orleans and very tight with my group of clients. So, so that's a lot of what we do is breed only straight Egyptians, but we take a great one out. And, and I think that we're, we're the larger programs, Paul can do both, can have both programs. And most of the larger programs do have their straights and their blends. Um, right. But some small breeders can't do that. So, well, um, we just we just did a podcast recently, kind of on the same topic, but related to the Polish bloodlines. Used to have coming out of Poland only Polish bred, 100% Polish breeding, and now you've got a mix coming out, and I think this is happening all over the world. The mix of yep. the, the different bloodlines. Yeah, the Poles have leased several straight Egyptian stallions over the um, last 10 years, and oh my God, those those Polish mares. Anybody would any stallion owner it would be a dream to get to have a stallion breed those mares, but the the Egyptian mix on it was just fantastic. So I think I think we're on a new plane where worldwide breeders are working together. And yeah, we're at the show ring. You know, it's like I don't know you, but um, but <laughs> everywhere else we're helping each other. And and I'm proud to see what uh, the the Egyptian lines are doing, uh, but. They're, they're, most of those are breeding great mares from these other programs. So it's not just it's not, they're not just better just because of uh, the Egyptian lines. They're, they're, well, they're mares. you, you, you got to think about the, the heritage of the Arabian is largely founded, if not 100% founded, in the Egyptian bloodlines that started decades ago. I mean, centuries ago. So yeah. really, to maintain the heritage of the Arabian, the straight Egyptian is a very critical component of the future. I think you're exactly right, and so I'm real pleased to see what's happening and um, and, and encourage anybody, don't take 15 years to learn what is a straight Egyptian like I did, um, um, but the, the history of it is pretty romantic to learn, and but, but, but it is that simple of an equation. Well, um, there's so many amazing people in this industry in all facets, and I we interview people on our podcast and we talk to people all the time about we love Arabian horses and, you know, everyone's story. And I, I just feel like there's a universal global community of people now that we used to be a little more insulated by country. And now I think we're more of a tapestry of folks. Very true. And I'm, I'm totally enamored with what you're doing and the people that I've been able to hear from, hear about and their stories on we love Arabian horses, and I just think it, it, it it's an excellent source of bringing us all together. Because, well, as I mentioned to you, I've met the Bilberries, but I never met Grant. And now, now I've heard, heard the personal stories about Sucra and his involvement in it. And so, your podcast is really informative and enjoyable, and it kind of makes when you hear other people's stories. It makes you feel validated because you think, oh, other people are going through the same thing I am. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's just really wonderful. And I thank you for having me on. And I'm hooked now. So, uh, well, good. Yeah. 
Well, on that Grant podcast, Sean, oh, my God, when he's telling that story, I just almost wanted to cry. I mean, it was such an emotional story, and it's his heart horse and how it happened and how it was born and the whole story of the fire. And it's just an amazing story. It's very emotional, too, and it's really wonderful hearing people speak from the heart about their horses and how much they mean to them. It's why we all do it, but hearing it from other people validates it for all of us. People like Grant and his parents are so important to the breed, and it's so rare to have someone say, no, that one's not for sale. It it makes you feel like, you know, there's a whole lot more reason why we do this. Uh, uh, David Gardner told me many times, and, and believe me, that man did very well, but he said, if I just spent this much time and effort on my career in a different field, I would have been multi, multi, multi millionaire. So you have to love it, and he did, and he, he was a great mentor, and and so you just got to love it. And boy, that came through in Grant's story. So so thank you for telling us these stories, and these podcasts are connecting people, and uh, I'm grateful for that. Well, let's um, chat just quickly at the end here about SCI and what you're doing. I know you've been there 35 years, but what is your basic program, and how do you help people now with your consulting? Well, um, I, I'm in the same spot that I've been for all these years. Uh, my, uh, I'm in Waco, Texas, and on a farm that I've owned for 35 years. But basically, I'm doing what I've always done, and I help breeders and consult and help them with their straight Egyptians and some with the Egyptian related. Mm-hmm. I, when I, when I started this for my, on my own, I made a decision that um, I think one of the things we're lacking in our business is what I would call a fiduciary. In other words, someone that's really knowledgeable, but that you don't have to do business against. And so I, I made a solid decision that I will not own mares. I manage a lot of mares for some super, super people, and I don't think it would be right for me to have my own mares and and then be telling them what to do or whatever. Um, so, right. Uh, so I enjoy being able to do that freely without any conflicts, and the people I work with can know that I'm not selling my filly against theirs or whatever, and, and I shouldn't because all the horses that they own – I've raised from little babies and probably raised their great-grandmothers and all that. So I have all the motivation in the world to see them, you know, for my own pride, to see them do really great. And and I'm so lucky that they've given me, I have the finest group of straight Egyptian mares owned by my clients that I get to work with. And that is so, makes me so happy and I appreciate them so much. Well, Sean, um, if anyone wanted to reach out to you and, and get in touch with you, what's your best email address? Um, it's cruz, C-R-E-W-S dot Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at Outlook.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time, and we'd love to continue learning more about the Egyptian community over time. We'll do some more podcasts about it. You're the best. Thank you, Paul. This is Austin, director of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure you click subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Comments, questions, guest ideas? 
feel free to send me an email at austin at welovearabianhorses.com or just use the contact button on our website at weloveArabianHorses.com. 